How do we begin to talk about race? For people of colour, it can be traumatic. For white people, it can also be confronting. There's a risk of retreating into our corners or simply shutting the whole topic down. Well, Glenn Singleton is an African-American author and educator, and he's trying to get us started on this conversation. He says we need to be courageous. In the United States, and increasingly I've discovered in the last 30 years around the world, we're actually socialized to fear having conversations about race. And Mm -hmm. in that way, we don't really discover that race is, in fact, a a real live phenomena in our lives, and we all have a story to tell. And so Courageous Conversation is a platform And it's also a methodology that enables people to uh, engage in a conversation, sustain that conversation, and take it to a place that is deeply transformative. So how do we begin to do that in our workplaces, in our schools, in our social relationships, in our sporting clubs, all the places that we meet and all the places that to some degree race shapes? How do we begin to do it in a practical sense? The thing that we find in the workplace or that we find in uh, our sporting organizations is that there is some person or some group of people, let's call them the leaders, the coaches, the executive staff, and they are actually giving permission to people to have a conversation by modeling it. And so in some ways, when I see the president of an organization, when I see the coaches actually engaging in this conversation in a thoughtful way and inviting those that they supervise or that they coach to come into the conversation, therein lies the secret, I would say, to opening up the dialogue in organizations. One of the difficulties when we approach a question of race, and I'm speaking here as a as an Aboriginal Australian and whose life is absolutely shaped by these forces of race and racism, is that we just speak so different languages. What I can perceive and feel as being racist, someone else would deny or not even identify as being racist, where people who may see themselves as people of goodwill can also perpetuate racism. So how do we begin to bridge that divide when we we can't even necessarily begin from the same place? Right. You're talking about consciousness and the aspect of giving permission to discover one's own story first. Many times here, for example, white Australians are trying to figure out with all kinds of sympathy and empathy, if you will, the experience, the plight of indigenous people. And the problem in that first step of trying to figure out the experience of another is that oftentimes you don't know what your own experience is. Mm. And so we have to actually create the space where people first and foremost understand their own experience. And for people of color, for indigenous people, for example, sometimes we understand our own unique experience, but we haven't necessarily gained the experience across our racial collective. 
And so in the room, sometimes it's darker skin Aboriginal people hearing from lighter skin Aboriginal mm. people. And in that comes a narrative that's quite familiar, okay, to the narrative that we hear that you just described of, say, white Australians trying to hear the story of Aboriginal or darker skinned Australians. Mm. One of the difficulties, of course, is the emotions that come with that conversation. Now, yes. I know that whenever it's broached or whenever I experience racism and whenever I become conscious, and it's it's quite often conscious of how racism seeps into so much of our lives, that there is a feeling of anger. Mm. And anger can be a motivator, but can also shut down a lot of conversations. But we have to factor that in, don't we? That Absolutely. people are going to come to this with quite a righteous anger. Absolutely. And courageous conversation being a suite of tools. One of the tools is called the compass. In the compass, there are four different quadrants. One of those quadrants is the feeling quadrant. Mm. Another quadrant is the believing quadrant, the thinking quadrant, and the acting quadrant. And in my feeling quadrant as a black American, I have what you call this righteous anger that is basically developed over a lifetime of these racial slights and injustices. But I also get to understand that not only do I have that feeling quadrant, but I also have a thinking quadrant. And in that thinking quadrant, I have data. I have examples that sometimes are easier for people to access the same understanding of the injustice. And so by having an opportunity to learn how mm. to express my racial reality in more than my anger, okay, not to diminish it, but to give an alternative to it. I can express it in belief. I can express it in the actions that I've taken. And that then allows for people to engage across different mm. understandings and, and different dispositions, if you will. If that's what it asks of you and me, um, to be able to understand those feelings and put that into thought and find connections, what does it ask of a white person? And does it ask of them to become vulnerable, to open themselves up to seeing themselves and challenging a lot of their own actions and ideas in ways perhaps that they hadn't. Absolutely. And I would not make the feeling quadrant and the anger that, that you as an Aboriginal man or, or me as, a, as an African-American man from the United States, that anger be our sole province. Because in these conversations, oftentimes white people get quite angry. Mm. And we also need to uh, give them tools to navigate this terrain in places other than their anger, right? To, to really form some, some logic, to really get behind the beliefs that are fostering that anger. And so there is somewhat of a universal experience because we all can tap into anger for some reason. And that's what we're wanting to do. We're wanting to let folks know that this is not the sole province anger around race. It just plays out a bit differently for me on the mm. receiving end of that racism versus for my white counterparts often who are the projector of that racism. Race and racism are tied to power. Uh, mm. So how do we navigate the power relationship? Is, it, is the load more heavily placed on people like you and me and people of color to bring 
this conversation, to open up that space in a world where whiteness is often associated with power and many white people may simply want to turn away. Yeah. I would say that uh, in my entire life and what I've inherited from the elders and, and the ancestors is this realization that there is an unevenness in what we carry for racial progress. And some of that is because I am going to be early in my understanding and assessment and desire to bring about change. And so I carry that with me. Now, that is also to say, though, that as I'm carrying it with me, I get to make some decisions. And some days I'm not going to carry as heavy a load. And mm. some days I'm going to be more willing. I'm going mm. to be more committed to it. And that's part of the understanding as well. When people of color say that I need to step back a bit for my own self-care, for my own preservation, we have to honor that. Glenn, listening to you speak, and it's such a, a rational and thoughtful approach to this and a productive one, but how do you feel when you are confronted by racism yourself personally? Uh, an anecdote, not long ago, I was working in public and someone walked up and yelled very loudly directly towards me the N-word. Mm. But I can't begin to tell you the range of emotions I felt. I felt belittled, I felt attacked, I felt breathless, and I felt very sad and angry. And the last thing I wanted to do necessarily was have a conversation, I can tell you. But how do you deal with that? Because there is the conceptual, there is the intellectual, but there is the lived reality as well. And when that lands, how do you deal with that? Yeah, the reality is that I deal with it by doing just what we're doing right now. I need to talk to someone about that. And so maybe it's not to voice that right in the moment. Mm. Uh, maybe I'm internalizing a bit of it to find the safe space where I can talk about it and not be cross-examined, not be challenged that that actually happened, not be questioned as to whether I'm actually perceiving it right. We need to have our own communities of safety because racism is still a reality in our lives. Glenn, when Barack Obama was elected, America indulged in the idea that now all debts had been paid. I remember at the time someone saying, no more excuses to African-Americans, that you can even become president of the United States. And people talked about a post-racial America. Is that what we should be working towards? Or should we be able to see race, deal with the realities of racism, but also celebrate those things that are different? Is that post-racialism a place we should be heading towards? Given that race is a fiction, Stan, mm. right? Given that it is a social, a social yeah. construction, we definitely, as real live human beings, should not be honoring a fiction in our lives. Mm. And so whether that means the baggage that goes along with this idea of post-racial, which you are correct, was the voice that came out of many in the United States who were simply unconscious about how races lived today. No one in their right mind would believe that just because we've elected one man and brought his family to Washington, D.C., that racism and race is no longer a factor. But, but this was an indication of people's naivete about race and about racism. And that was 
actually an illustration of where we actually are. And that's the point of Courageous Conversation, not to create a fiction, more fiction as race is, Mm. but to actually get into the truth of race and how it's lived right now. Glenn, just finally, one word that you return to a lot is the word hope. How important is that? How do we find that hope? When I hear the word hope, I often think of um, W.E.B. Du Bois, the the great African-American scholar who talked of a hope that was hopeless, yet not unhopeful, that Mm. even in the face of hopelessness, there is some idea of hope. What is the role of hope in your courageous conversations? I do believe that this connection to the importance of hope is passed down through the generations. And Du Bois says one of the most important ancestral voices for me indicates that once I lose hope, I've actually lost life. Mm. And so each day is a possibility of getting better. And I need to get better. So when I'm experiencing my own betterment, then I'm hopeful. And so what I ask people to do is not to try to find hope in the external, but to really build and develop and embrace hope internally. And that's what I'm doing every day. And so when I can leave a room like I've just left here with Queensland Health and I can watch transformation happen in a matter of minutes with people, that Mm -hmm. actually builds my hope. Glenn Singleton, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Stan, thank you. Glenn Singleton is the president of Courageous Conversations, an agency aiming to engage in and deepen interracial dialogue. He's in Australia this week and he joined us from the ABC Brisbane studios.